So we are preaching our way through the book of Romans. Let me tell you how this letter came into being, just to remind you. Paul is the author. Paul started off as a Jewish religious leader, and he hated the message of Jesus and persecuted Christians. But one day, as Paul was traveling, the resurrected Jesus appeared to him, and he knew that this was Jesus, and he knew that this meant Jesus, you'd risen from the dead, and he knew that that meant Jesus was the Messiah who'd been promised in the Old Testament scriptures. He knew that. And so Paul turned from his sin and put his trust in Jesus Christ, and God poured the Holy Spirit into his heart, transformed him. Jesus called him to go and preach and plant churches in areas where Jesus' message had not gone yet, and Jesus gifted Paul as an apostle. He was called an apostle, gifted as an apostle, which included the fact that what he wrote and what he spoke was perfect truth from God himself, which is why his letter is included in the scriptures. So what happened next? Here's a map. Paul started preaching, moved up north through Antioch, and then he turned west, preaching, planting churches throughout what's called Galatia on this map, which is actually modern-day Turkey. And he crossed the Aegean Sea, preaching in Macedonia, preaching, planting churches there. This went on over years. But Paul had his heart also set on going further westward and preaching and planting churches in Spain, where the name of Jesus had not been named. And Paul knew that on the way to Spain, he would pass through Rome. And he'd always wanted to visit the church in Rome. He'd never been there before, but he heard wonderful things about what God was doing in that church. And so he decided he would visit Rome on his way to Spain so he can encourage them, preach the gospel in that city, and prayerfully raise up some financial support to help him on his way toward Spain. And so Paul wrote this letter to introduce himself and his gospel to the believers that are there in Rome. That's how this letter came into being. Now, here's what we've seen so far in this letter. We've been going through, I don't know how many weeks, I haven't counted them. But first of all, the first section is in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Paul introduces himself, and he summarizes his gospel in just a few verses. But then Paul wants to go into a lot more detail on the gospel. So second, in chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, he tells us that we have all sinned. We all face God's wrath forever. And there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. And that's where we're left at the end of chapter 3, verse 20. But the story doesn't stop there. The good news in chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 4, verse 25, is that God's saving righteousness has been manifested in Jesus Christ so we can be saved by faith in him. Chapter 3, verse 21 all the way through chapter 4, verse 25. And that third section is what we started last week, and we're going to be in this section for a couple of weeks here. Now, last week we saw that because Jesus died on the cross, paying for all the sins 
of everyone who trusts him, that means that we are saved not by trying to make ourselves good enough. We're not saved by works, which would mean trying to earn salvation through obeying God. That's not how we're saved. There's a whole other way that we're saved. We're saved by faith, not works, but faith, where we receive salvation by trusting in what God will do through the Messiah, Jesus. So it's not by works where we're trying to earn salvation through obeying God. It's by faith where we receive salvation by trusting what God has done in Jesus Christ. That's what we saw last week. And then this week, Paul pulls out a very important implication of the fact that we are saved by faith. In verses 27 through 31, Paul says, Therefore, because salvation is by faith, not by works, therefore, brothers and sisters, boasting is excluded. Boasting is excluded. That's what Paul is saying. That's his main point in this passage. Now, to understand that, we've got to figure out what is boasting. Boasting is excluded because we're saved by faith. What is boasting? Let's raise that as our first question. What does Paul mean by boasting? Look again at what he says. Mary read it for us. Look again, verse 27. Then, in light of the fact that we're saved by faith through Jesus, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. So Paul says, because we're saved by faith, understand, faith excludes boasting. Now, what is boasting? Let's be clear on that. We do know that there's a good kind of boasting that's not excluded by faith, where we boast in God, where we exalt God for who he is and what he's done. That's a good kind of boasting. We can see an example of that in Psalm 34, verse 2. The psalmist says, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. So when we boast in the Lord, exalting Him for who He is and what He's done, the humble, they hear and they rejoice. And that's a good kind of boasting. That's not excluded by faith. What's excluded is the wrong kind of boasting. This is where instead of exalting God for who he is and what he's done, we exalt ourselves for who we are and what we've done. We take credit for who we are. We take credit for what we've done. Let me give you some examples. Actually, yes, some examples. Let's say you get a promotion and you are patting yourself on the back, thinking about, look at how smart I am. Look at how hard I worked. Look at how diligent and savvy I've been. You're exalting yourself for who you are and what you've done, and the Bible would call that boasting. Or let's say that your friend tells you that they just took a 10-kilometer run. Really impressed, 10K. And you want to exalt yourself by saying, well, that's really good. I've done a 20K run. Okay, Exalting yourself. That's boasting. Or maybe on a more spiritual or religious perspective, let's say that tonight you go home and open up your Bible and read a few chapters of the Scripture and 
then close your Bible and congratulate yourself for how impressed God must be with you and how much better you are than other people who are at home doing something besides reading the Bible. That's boasting. And we're all tempted to boast, aren't we? Boasting feels so natural, and it feels so good, doesn't it, sometimes? I mean, but the Bible is very serious. God is very serious about condemning boasting. Look at Psalm chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. Here David is talking to God, and look at what he says to God. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. And you can see verse after verse after verse where God says, Boasting is wicked. Boasting is evil. And we've seen Paul say that back in the first chapter of Romans. Remember what we saw? Romans chapter 1, he's describing humanity's sin. And look at what he says in verse 30. He says we've been slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, which means proud, boastful, there it is, Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. So it's wrong. It's wrong for us to exalt ourselves, to boast, exalting ourselves in who we are, what we've done, taking credit for those things. The Bible says that's, that's wrong. And, and that's Paul's point in Romans 3, verse 27. Let's read that, read that again. Paul says, Then, in light of the fact that we're saved by faith, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. So Paul says faith excludes boasting. Which means that the Old Testament law excludes boasting because the Old Testament law teaches that we're saved by faith, not by works. Now at this point, Paul knows there's a problem. He knows that there will be some of his readers who most probably think that the law is a law of works, not a law of faith. Paul knows that most of the people of Israel, the Old Testament time period, most of them, not all, but most, had taken the Old Testament law, which taught salvation by faith, and they had distorted that law, they had twisted the Old Testament law, and made it into a law of works. So instead of being a law of faith, which calls us to receive salvation by God's mercy, by trusting what God would do and has done in the Messiah, instead it says it's works. We need to earn salvation by obeying God. Two drastically different approaches to salvation. And Paul knows that some of his readers in Rome who are Jewish believers will think that the law is a law of works. And Paul knows that that's dangerous because if they think that the law is a law of works, then they're still going to be thinking about the fact that they need to earn favor from God by obeying enough, which will make them prone to boasting in their obedience, which is against the whole flow of what salvation by faith means. So Paul knows that some of those readers are going to be prone to boasting, and he wants to help them be correct in their understanding of the law, that the law is not a law of works. It's a law of faith. So in verses 28 to 31, 
Paul raises the question, answers the question, did the law, the Old Testament law, teach salvation by works or by faith? Now, this isn't just a question that was important for Paul to answer back in the first century. This is a question that's important for us to answer here tonight. Because there are, there are Christians who have heard that in the Old Testament, people were saved by works. People who've heard that, people who, maybe some of you have heard that, you've been taught that, that the Old Testament taught were saved by works. But if that's what you've heard, then, then you could struggle in a number of ways. You could, if you think the Old Testament teaches were saved by works, then I should get to work to earn some more favor from God. I want more favor. I'm going to obey to get saved, to get his favor. And that's completely wrong. Also, then when you do obey and you think, oh, I've gotten some favor from God, you're going to be tempted to boast in that because you think you've earned it. Or you may also just think, why bother reading the Old Testament if it's teaching me salvation by works? Because the New Testament's teaching salvation by faith. I'm not going to waste my time with that book. But then you miss the massive encouragement that God has for us in the Old Testament. So we need to get this answered here too, don't we, brothers and sisters? So if you have been taught that the Old Testament teaches salvation by works, just hear me out, listen to what we're going to say. More important, hear what Paul says here. Look at what Paul says, and I hope you'll see that the law teaches salvation by faith, and that you'll get that sorted. So, does the law teach salvation by works or by faith? Look at what Paul says in verse 28, but start in verse 27 to get the flow of thought. Verse 27, remember, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Verse 28, for we hold that one, anyone, any human, Old Testament, New Testament, is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So Paul is clear here that the Old Testament and the New Testament both teach that people are justified, saved, receive salvation by faith apart from works of the law. Now, of course, Works of obedience will flow from faith. When there's genuine faith, there will always be obedience taking place all the time. But no one gets saved. No one gets forgiven on the basis of their obedience or on the basis of their works. If we want to be saved, we don't focus on trying to obey more and more and more. If you want to be saved, we focus on trusting God's promises in Christ. That's what we do. So the Old Testament teaches, Paul says here, that we're saved by faith. And you can see that throughout the Old Testament. Let me give you two scriptures to back that up. Just jot these down. If you've been taught differently, jot these down and spend time studying them this week. First, powerful scripture, Genesis 15, 6. How did Abraham attain righteousness before God? Look at Genesis 15, 6. This is so powerful. 15th chapter of the Bible, very, very beginning. How did Abraham attain righteousness before God? Genesis 15, 6. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to Abraham as righteousness. Abraham did not attain righteousness by obeying. Do you see that? Abraham received righteousness by believing 
trusting God's promises. Here's the story. Abraham and Sarah had not been able to get pregnant for many years. But God had promised Abraham that one of your descendants is going to be the Messiah who's going to bring salvation to every nation, tongue, and tribe. Speaking of Jesus. And God had promised Abraham, I'm going to give you a massive number of children. Many, many, many. Look at the stars. That's how many offspring you're going to have. So, but they hadn't gotten pregnant yet. But Abraham believed God's promise, trusted God's merciful promise to him. Abraham believed God. And because of what Jesus would do in paying for Abraham's sins on the cross, God counted Abraham's undeserving faith as a lifetime of perfect righteousness. Let me say that again. This is so important. Because of what Jesus would do on the cross, God counted Abraham's undeserving, imperfect faith as a lifetime of perfect righteousness because of what Jesus would do. So Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, Abraham is a hugely important person in the Old Testament. The Old Testament believers looked to Abraham as their example, what it means to know God, follow God, faith. Remember, God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So Abraham is huge in the Old Testament, and the way that Abraham was saved, the way that he was forgiven, the way that he came into favor with God was not by earning it through his works, it was by receiving it by faith. You see that? It's so important here. Rock-solid, powerful scripture. If you've been taught differently, then think deeply about this. Now, let's look at Romans chapter, second scripture, Romans chapter 9, verses 30 to 32. You may be thinking, okay, that's Abraham, but what about the law? The law came in 430 years later. But I mean, think about it. If God saves Abraham by faith in Genesis 15, 6, do you think that the law he's going to bring in later is going to say, okay, now hold it, starting different way of salvation now. Now it's earning it by works. No, but look at Paul says that exact thing. He tells us that's not what happened. Romans 9, 30 to 32. Start with verse 30. Paul says, what shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained righteousness. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. This is amazing. Here's what Paul's telling us. Gentiles, who were not pursuing righteousness by works, became righteous before God. How? By faith. By trusting what God would do through Jesus. But the Jews, who were pursuing the Old Testament law, did not become righteous before God. Why? The answer is in verse 32. Paul says, why? Because they, Israel, did not pursue it, the law, by faith. Israel did not pursue the law by faith, but as if it were by works. 
That's an amazing scripture. So they pursued the law by works, but the law is not by works. They pursued the law as if that is how God wanted it to be pursued. That is not how God wanted it to be pursued. That is not what the law teaches. The law says faith. The law teaches faith. The law calls us to faith. And then obedience flows from faith. We're not saved by obedience. We're saved by faith. Obedience flows from faith. And tragically, many of the people of Israel took the good law, which was a law of faith, and they twisted it. They distorted it. They turned it into a law of works by which they could feel like they were elevated above others, by which they could boast. Paul himself, that's how he lived. He was boasting and how he'd been circumcised on the eighth day and this and this and this and this because he himself, before he was saved, had turned the Old Testament law of faith into a law of works. So those two scriptures show clearly the Old Testament did not teach salvation by works. The Old Testament taught salvation by Okay, we're getting close, okay? So we, the Old Testament did not teach salvation by works, but the Old Testament taught salvation by faith. It's faith. Those scriptures show that the Old Testament taught faith, just like the New Testament teaches faith. Old Testament and New Testament, same truth, same gospel, same merciful God, same Jesus, the Messiah who pays for our sins, pictured through the animal sacrifices. The only way that anyone ever can be forgiven by God, saved by God, reconciled to God, is by faith. Not earning through obeying, but receiving salvation through trusting. And that's what Paul says back in chapter 3, verse 28. Let's go back there and see this summary statement. For we hold that one is justified, Old Testament, New Testament, any human being is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, the reason that Paul emphasizes this so much here and the reason that I'm emphasizing it so much here is because Paul knows some of his readers were confused by this and some of you maybe have been confused by this. It's very important that you understand that there is no place in any part of Christianity, in any part of the Bible, where we are told to earn salvation by obeying God. Never is that taught. That's man-made religion, which has also snuck into some people's understandings of the Bible. Because we can turn the law, we can turn the gospel into, a instead of a gospel of faith, a gospel of works, where the reason that I'm saved is, well, because I go to church. The reason I'm saved is because I got baptized. The reason I'm saved is because I I try to love my enemies. Works, works, works. Those are important. We're called to live that way. But none of those are going to be a basis by which God says, oh, wow, you're really looking good. I owe you salvation now. Well done. Start boasting. It's not how it works. It's not how it works. We need to be clear on this. So look at what Paul says in verses 29 and 30. I've showed you Genesis 15, 6 and Romans 9, verses 30 to 32. Here's the two verses where Paul gives his readers right then and there in this chapter, showing that salvation in the Old Testament is by faith, not works. Verse 29, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. 
since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. Okay, Paul brings in circumcision here. We've got to understand circumcision. There's a lot of scholarly talk about exactly what circumcision meant, and there's a lot of back and forth. And let me just say it means at least this, that God wanted to have Israel be a culturally distinct nation from the other nations, so that as they trusted God and he poured his favor out upon them mercifully by grace, through faith, not by works, that the nations around would say, whoa, look at that distinct people. They are so blessed. And they're talking, they're boasting in God all the day long. We want to find out about their God. He looks like he's really loving and merciful and gracious. That was God's purpose in the Old Testament. And so God gave Israel commands which would set them apart from the other nations culturally. Like, for example, they couldn't eat pork. And an example that they didn't work on the Sabbath day. They rested. They worshipped. And all the baby boys were circumcised on the eighth day. That's part of what circumcision is about. Circumcision involved removing the foreskin of the baby boy on the eighth day. But see, circumcision did not save anyone. It helped distinguish Israel from the other nations. That's what it did. And that was God's plan in the Old Testament. But now Jesus coming changed that plan. With Jesus, God's plan no longer focused on Israel displaying God to the rest of the nations, God's people being a unique, separate culture, displaying who God is to others. Now Jesus calls all of us to go into all the nations with the gospel, not to sit back and display, but to go and tell. It's all changed. God's calling us to go to the nations. Here we are, right? To adapt to their cultures in ways that aren't sinful and tell them about Jesus so they can be saved by faith. So God no longer calls his people to be circumcised. But some Jewish Christians, Paul's time, did not understand this. Some Jewish Christians thought the Old Testament is a law of works. And then in addition to trusting Jesus, Gentiles who become Christians have to get circumcised. That's Acts 15. Remember the Judaizers. That's what they thought. And some of those folks were probably in the church in Rome. So in verses 29 to 30, Paul shows how wrong that is. If a Gentile had to become culturally Jewish to be saved, then God is only God of the Jews, because his people will all become Jewish. But God is not God only of the Jews. As Paul says in verse 29, God is God of the Jews and the Gentiles. No one is saved by circumcision. No Gentile needs to be circumcised. All they need to do is just trust Jesus. Okay? Everyone gets saved, not by any works, not by circumcision, by faith in God's promises as revealed in Jesus Christ. And notice what Paul says in verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law, the Old Testament law, by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Here's the question he's asking. 
If we teach that we're saved by faith, does that overthrow the Old Testament law? The answer is no, because the Old Testament law teaches that we're saved by faith. So if we teach that we're saved by faith, we're not overthrowing the Old Testament law. We're supporting the Old Testament law. We're agreeing with the Old Testament law. There's one way to be saved, Old Testament and New Testament. It's by faith, not by works, earning salvation, earning God's favor by obeying God. It's by faith, receiving salvation, receiving God's favor by trusting Jesus Christ. Hey, Grace Church, are we clear on this? So important. So important. That's why Paul is belaboring this point. Because if we don't understand that there is no place for earning favor, earning salvation by works, if we don't understand that we will all be more prone to boasting, and boasting is spiritually deadly, is why Paul is taking it so seriously here. And faith destroys boasting. Destroys boasting. That's what Paul says, verse 27. And it's probably a shocking thing for you to hear that faith destroys boasting. I mean, doesn't boasting just kind of feel like right sometimes? Feel kind of like natural? I mean, we're all so accustomed to doing it. It's natural. It just feels so right to exalt ourselves, to take credit ourselves for who we are and what we've done. But Paul says no. He wants us to feel the shock of these words. Faith excludes boasting. Faith, genuine faith in Christ, stops boasting. You cannot at the same time have genuine faith in Jesus Christ and boast, take credit for who you are or what you've done. It's impossible, psychologically impossible. Paul wants us to understand that. So how does that work? How does faith exclude boasting? Last week, we saw that we've all been sinners. Let's just review this. This is where the the foundation is. Even though we've had massive evidence of God, God's reality from creation around us, God's wisdom in the design of our bodies, God's goodness in giving us life and letting us live here. We have massive evidence of God's reality, God's wisdom, God's power, God's love, God's goodness. Even though we have all of that in front of our eyes, we did not want to turn to God. Even though God is the all-satisfying joy of the universe, in our pride, we turned our backs on Him. We walked away from Him and tried to create our own little joy sources. That's what we've all done, every human being. And as a result, we're enslaved to sin. We're guilty before God. We deserve eternal punishment from God. And there was nothing that we in ourselves could do about that. This is where it all starts. But God sent Jesus. Jesus came. God the Father, in great love for us, sent his Son to the cross. Jesus, with great costly love for us, set his face to go to Jerusalem, knowing he's going to the cross. God the Father, Jesus the Son, moving Jesus towards the cross. And he died and he paid for all the sins of everyone who will trust him. Oh, those words are sweet. 
Best news in the whole world. And when we turn and put our trust in Jesus Christ, when we trust Jesus, all that God's promised to do in us, to be for us in him, picture heaven, it's like the heavens open up. And God's saving power comes upon us sinful people. We're ungodly. We're sinful. We're just trusting. Change me. Forgive me. Fill me. I'm here. I'm needy. Remember, I'm in the emergency room. I'm dying. Doctor, help me. That's what faith is. That's where we are. And when we do that, the heavens open up. And God's saving power is poured out upon us. And at that moment, all of our sins, all of your sins, Punished in Jesus, which means you'll never be punished for them. And all of Jesus' perfect sinlessness given to you as a gift to cover your remaining sinfulness. And God takes out our old hearts, hearts of stone, which were enslaved to sin. Just heart transplant time. Take that thing out of there. That's not going to work. Puts in a brand new heart, a heart of flesh, heart of stone taken out. Gives a heart of flesh, which loves Jesus more than anything. Sees Jesus, loves Jesus, trusts Jesus. And God pours his love into our hearts. His presence comes and lives inside of us. He fills us with his joy. And for the first time, we taste the joy we've been longing for all our lives. When we turn and put our trust in Jesus Christ, needy people, sinful people, people who cannot save ourselves, when we trust Jesus to save us, the heavens open, God's saving power is poured out, and we are saved. That's what happens. That's how you got saved. Now, let's just review. How did that happen again? Was it because like you went to church like three or four weeks in a row? Is that how it happened? Number four, boom, salvation comes. Is that how it happened? Or is it because, well, you, you know, you, you, you've done 38 random acts of kindness to people? All of a sudden, boom, number 38. Is that how it happened? Church. Church. That is not how it happened. Okay? It happened one way. Help. I trust. I'm helpless and hopeless. Save me. Look at this heart. Look at this history. Look at this guilt. Help. Trust. Heaven opens. Power comes. So that's all building up to why faith excludes boasting. Think about your life now. You're a saved person. Some of you may not yet be saved. I hope you'll leave here saved. But I'm talking to those of you who are saved. You've you've trusted Christ. You've been saved. Think about your life. There used to be only bad in your life right? But now, because you're saved, there's good. And there's still remaining sin, yes, but there is good now. There's good and bad in your life right now, okay? Your life has good, and your life has bad. Anything bad, okay, like your temper, your jealousies, your impatience, that's that's sin. That dishonors God. You're not going to boast in that, right? You don't want to take credit for that. You can make excuses, but you can't. No, no, don't boast in that. That's wrong. That's sin. So anything bad in you, you're not going to boast in it. So that takes care of that part of your life. But there's also good in your life. 
That's what we tend to boast in, right? Listen, anything good in you did not come from you. It didn't come ultimately from you. You can't take credit for it. It was a gift from God, purchased through Jesus, death on the cross. The Father sending his Son to the cross purchased that good for you. Jesus going to the cross purchased that good for you. Let's take some examples. Think of your obedience. Maybe serving in some ministry area, sharing the gospel with somebody, fighting against some area of sin. That obedience is good. It's good that you're obedient. It's good that you're seeking to be obedient. We all should be seeking to be obedient. But that seeking to be obedient did not come ultimately from you. God gave you a new heart. That heart was purchased through Jesus' death on the cross. It's a gift, a costly gift. So we can't boast in our obedience. We can't boast in our faith. Faith didn't come ultimately from us. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Gift of God, so that no one should boast. Think of anything that you might think is good about you. Okay, maybe, maybe your family, you know, your, your friends, maybe your looks, maybe your money, your job, your skill, your IQ, whatever. Just think of all the things that you can tend to think are, are, are good about you, skills that you have. Now think about this. Because of our sin, we all deserve hell right this moment. So anything better than hell is a blood-bought gift from Jesus. It's a gift from him. So how can we boast as if these things came from us? I mean, think about it. Anything good in you, anything good, was purchased for you on the cross through Jesus. The picture I get sometimes is that Jesus has brought it to you, walking on nail-pierced feet, handing it to you with nail-pierced hands. That it was purchased for you by his suffering, by his agony on the cross, by his love. He bought that for you. That's a gift. And if it's a gift he bought for you on the cross, we should never say, look what I did. Look what I've got. Applaud me. Notice me. Make me better than other people. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Faith excludes all boasting. Genuine faith stops boasting. When we see Jesus in his love, purchasing lavish good for us on the cross, we will stop boasting in ourselves. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have? that you did not receive as a gift is the implication. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it as a gift, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Blood-bought gifts. 
When we see that, we'll stop boasting in ourselves. We will hate our tendency to boast in ourselves. We will turn away from our boasting in ourselves, and we will boast in Jesus. We will praise Jesus. We will rejoice in Jesus. We will exalt Jesus. We will worship Jesus now and forever. Faith excludes boasting. So Grace Church, brothers, sisters, let's stop boasting. By faith, not, okay, I'm going to grip my teeth. I'm not going to say those boastful words. No, but, oh, let's see Jesus. Let's see him bringing these beautiful gifts to you, carried on nail-pierced feet, handed to you with nail-pierced hands, purchased through his suffering, through his agony, through his love. And let's exalt Jesus for who he is and for what he's done. Let's stand. Father, you know how we are so prone to boast in ourselves. And you are showing us tonight how wrong that is. Oh, Lord, help us see that all we've deserved, all we've earned, no favor from you, no salvation, all we've earned, deserved in ourselves is hell forever. And you sent your son to the cross to pay, so we could be saved, forgiven. And you've given us life and friends and obedience and faith and joy in you and skills and abilities and resources. You've lavished your blessings upon us, and it's all blood-bought gifts. Help us, Father, please, to see this more clearly. Just wipe us clean from boasting in ourselves, and let us boast in the Lord as a church that Jesus will be praised wherever we go. Put that upon us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.